0: That August is all that I know It's with me where I ride.
1: Good morning and welcome to episode 934 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, Brought to you by the Play Index, baseballreference.com, and our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hey, Ben. Hello. I used a lot of the Play Index yesterday, in fact.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you did. It was a big day for Play Indexing.
1: Yeah, it was. I, I suppose we'll talk about whatever uh, trades uh, we're inspired to start talking about. But do you have anything before that?
0: I don't think I do. I've been in full deadline mode for a couple of days, so I haven't had any other independent thoughts.
1: All right. Well, I also don't have anything, although I will uh, I will say that uh, I'm kind of excited. Later this week, we're going to talk about Integrity Windows. So pretty pretty <laughs> excited about that. Do you, integrity, do you know what Integrity Windows are? No. Integrity Windows. It's a window company. They advertise at baseball
0: games. Oh. Okay. So there you go. They've had advertised poorly. You might say that.
1: All right. (laughs) Uh, Okie doke. Um, So I guess, let's see, you can steer this anywhere you want it to go if you want. But probably the biggest, most interesting thing that uh, happened, happened a couple days ago. So we're a little bit late, Uh, but then it played out over the course of the next couple days. And now Jonathan LuCroy is a Texas Ranger. Um, And he got that way because he uh, turned down a trade to the Cleveland Indians. Luke Roy has um, been sort of strangely vocal about not wanting to be in Milwaukee as long as they sucked. uh, And they still suck and continue to suck. And when he got traded to a contender, though, he did what people with uh, with, uh, no trade clauses often do. He uh, used that leverage to try to get a better contract status for himself. Uh, It did not work, uh, which I think anybody uh, looking at what he was asking for would have seen that it wouldn't work. He ended up not going to Cleveland, but he got traded to Texas anyway where his no-trade clause did not apply because he had a limited no-trade clause. So I uh, I don't know if you had a uh, any strong emotions when this was happening. It sort of feels like old now, but it's also to some degree maybe the most interesting thing that happened to the at the trade deadline because we saw not just a player moving teams or not moving teams, but we saw a glimpse into his psyche.
0: Yeah, and it was surprising and also not surprising in some ways i mean he had every reason to do what he did the indians had every reason to do what they did and yet it was still sort of surprising just because he had talked so much about wanting to play for a winner that he kind of painted himself into a corner a little bit where you know he was saying he wanted to play for a contending team at the beginning of the season he was saying that when he demanded a trade or politely requested a trade over the winter. And he was saying that as recently as June in an interview. And obviously, that was not the only consideration for him, nor should it have been. But it kind of put him in an awkward position just because he made it all about playing for a winner. And then he got this chance to go play for not only a winner, but maybe the biggest winner in the American League. And he said no. And so ultimately, it was about money, which is completely reasonable. But Maybe made him look hypocritical to some people. And I don't know what he was expecting to come out of it, really. You know, like he he had to think probably that this was going to be the outcome that either he would end up staying in Milwaukee or the Brewers would just find another taker that he could not block a trade to. So in that sense, it was sort of futile, but I guess he had to try to wield that leverage. And then when the Indians said, well, no, we're not going to avoid that option, then I guess he was sort of obligated to go ahead and veto as he had threatened to do instead of just saying like, well, all right, then (laughs) fine. I cave, I fold, you win. But ultimately, the outcome was probably going to be the same either way. It wasn't like there was going to be some team that came along and gave the Brewers All the prospects they wanted, and also gave Lucroy the early free agency he wanted.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was basically in a position where there was nothing he could reasonably ask for. The only thing he could ask for was getting his, um, you know, getting to free agency a year earlier, basically uh, erasing next year's uh, year for the club control, and uh, that's a massive part of his value. It would basically be like taking out what half two-thirds of his value to the team that acquires him so it's just a massive jump in terms of what he's asking for and and then you know what most guys usually ask for at that point is maybe an extension but Luke Roy wouldn't necessarily want an extension he probably is going to be hitting free agency at about the last possible moment that he's a viable as a, a star catcher uh, in his 30s uh, and the team that is acquiring him is maybe the least likely, well, probably the second least likely in all of baseball to give him the sort of deal that he'd be looking for. So there were no in-betweens. It it almost felt like it was sort of just bad luck that he didn't have anything that he could ask for. Like he couldn't ask for, you know, something that would add three or six million dollars to the cost for the Indians. He had to give a, ask for something that was going to cost them like 30 million dollars or something. It was weird. The, there was the weird line in the Bob Nightingale piece about this that the Indians uh, also planned to play him at first base once Jan Gomes was healthy, including next yeah, year. And it didn't
0: make much sense.
1: It didn't make any sense at all. But besides not making sense, Nightingale said that essentially this would kill his free agent value if Lucroy was playing. Uh, in fact, all Roy would have been the backup catcher playing first base and DH, in essence, killing his free agent value. Do you think that it would affect his free agent value
0: at all? Well, I mean, I guess some other team could have looked at it and said, well, we still think he can be a catcher, and so it doesn't matter.
1: Wait, you you say some other team. You don't think that 29 other teams would would look at that? Well,
0: maybe not, because once he switches positions, then maybe some people wonder, is he going to be rusty? Is he going to need time to get his catching skills back? Will he have slipped in some way with a year of no catching? Maybe they'd even suspect that the Indians thought he wasn't capable of catching for whatever reason. He had a concussion last year. Maybe there would be concern about that. I mean, he's been very durable as a catcher this year, so there's no reason to think that he couldn't continue to do it. But if a team did something that made that little sense, then if I were a team looking from afar, I might wonder if it did make sense in some way that I wasn't seeing. So I think it could hurt. But it made pretty much zero sense. You know, A, not only is there no reason why the Indians would want to play a worse player at that position than Lucroy, but also why would they tell him that right now when they're trying to get him to accept a trade? Why would they say we're not going to make you the catcher next year they could always say sure you're going to be the catcher and then change their minds next year when he's already under team control so it didn't make sense for multiple reasons okay here's a hot take from me uh, moving him to first base while he is under your
1: control is the best thing you could do for his free agent value it makes it much less likely he's going to get injured in the next year and a half it basically protects him from you know infinite chances to be concussed or to otherwise suffer injuries uh, it takes off 200-ish games of wear and tear on his body as a catcher. Maybe not 200 because maybe he'd be the backup catcher, but maybe 100. And I think that there's at least people who believe that there's a um, cumulative toll on how many... Uh, just like a pitcher might have so many bullets in his elbow, catcher has you know so many bullets in his knee, uh, in his knees or other parts of his body that are affected by the squat And uh, he would be putting up much better, presumably, offensive numbers because uh, catchers take a hit in their offense when they're catching every day. And so this to me feels like, uh, you know, I don't really believe anybody would look at Lucroy and say, well, they had two catchers, therefore John Lucroy can't catch anymore. He's one of the elite catchers in baseball as as a framer. He has that reputation. He's not a particularly old man. There's no indication that his catching defense is a problem or that that's why he was being moved. Uh, and so if you could, it's almost like the, stra- the the very rare instance where it's in his best interests as a, as a player to not be, I mean, to be not fully optimized by the club that has him under club control. I mean, he's getting paid the same no matter what. It's almost like what we talked about some couple hundred episodes ago. If we could ever imagine a pitcher like wanting to, demanding to be a reliever basically until he's a year out from free agency and then, and then only then wanting to start, uh, so that he can demonstrate that he can start. Well, Luke Roy has demonstrated that he can catch and now he, it would be probably beneficial for him to take that year and a half off and not be exposed to all the things that otherwise kill catchers' careers at this stage. Um, of their careers.
0: Yeah, there's something to that. I don't know. I, you said there's no indication that he can't continue to catch. And I think some teams might take it as one if he doesn't continue to catch just because you don't really see guys who can catch and are still good at catching move for no reason. And this would sort of be moving for no reason. And so if he were to do that, then I think people would start to wonder, oh, well, he's over 30 and maybe they don't think he can hold up or maybe there's some problem we don't know about i don't know that's usually the progression for catchers is that they start getting up there in age and then they start seeing some time at first base or dh or whatever and it usually spells the end of your days as a as an everyday starting catcher so i don't know how much precedent there is for guys going back and forth i mean i guess you know like carlton fisk maybe was playing all sorts of positions and still catching sometimes until he was in his mid-40s. But I don't know how often a catcher would just take a year off and move to first base and then go back to being a full-time catcher for a significant period. I don't know how, how often that happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not for no reason, though. It's that the Indians have a lot of catchers, depending on whether you think that Jan Gomes is a credible major leaguer. but. Um, you know, they have good young catchers, they have Gomes, who's under contract for a very long time. And unless they trade him, he's, um, you know, probably worth the contract. So you have to do something with those players. But anyway, all right, fair enough. Uh, Do you believe that it was actually the plan? Or do you think that this was spin to protect Jan Gomes' relationship with the club? Uh, once either once it became clear that Luke Roy wasn't coming, or during the in-between period where it wasn't—at least—it wasn't, at least it wasn't a, a guarantee that Luke Roy was coming, and the Indians had to uh, preserve that relationship with a guy who is signed through what 2021 with them.
0: Yeah, I guess that's the most plausible reason for it, because the Indians probably knew that they weren't going to get Luke Roy or they probably had a decent indication that they might not get him, as at least as soon as he made that demand. So at that point, then the most important thing becomes preserving your relationship with the guy you actually do have trying to think of what other reasons there could possibly be. I mean, maybe just, I don't know, like the Indians wouldn't want to make it look like they cheaped out or something, or, you know, like they, they weren't willing to make the move. I mean, it it wouldn't have made sense for them to make the move, but maybe the the casual fan sees that and says, well, they should have been willing to do it anyway or something. And so this is a, a more on the field reason, as opposed to a prospect or financial reason. I don't know. It's it's a stretch any way you look at it. I think so. I'm more inclined to believe that there was some kind of just misunderstanding, or no one actually thought that. I I don't really know where that came from.
1: All right. Next thing we talked already about the Araldis Chapman trade, which sort of shocked everybody for. How much, how much it cost to get a really good reliever for two months plus a postseason. And since then, there's been a lot of, I think, talk about how that trade might have or was going to or did, uh, sort of reset the market for top relief pitching and, and created a sort of a, I don't know if a bubble is the right word, but created higher prices for top relief pitchers. Andrew Miller was traded for, um, you know, a, a very good package, a, top 30 guy in Clint Frazier, uh, probably another top 100 guy in Justice Sheffield, uh, and a couple of minor league relievers. That is, eh, I mean, it's not as surprising as Chapman. Miller has two years of club control after this, although they're not super cheap. Uh, But, you know, still, uh, that's top talent for a reliever, which a couple years ago we uh, were all pretty sure you shouldn't do. And I wonder if you think, though, that the narrative held up through the trade deadline. Um, the Giants gave up Andrew Susak and uh, Phil Bickford for Will Smith, who's a young reliever under club control and a, and a good power lefty. Uh, the Angels got practically nothing for Joe Smith. Um, Mark Melanson was traded for basically a, another young reliever. Uh, who has only you know about a year of service time? Uh, Felipe Rivero, who will um, you know, in in the best version of his career, will step in and be a closer for the next five years. And in the worst, he's a seventh inning guy for the rest of his career. Um, and uh, let's see, who else?
0: What other were there other relievers traded? Well, Jeremy Jeffress. Oh yeah, Jeremy was Jeffress part is of part the of the eventual Lufroy Lufroy deal. Lufroy trade.
1: So it's hard to figure out what his share of that deal was. So you almost have to throw him out. Uh,
0: anybody else? Zach Duke was traded, Tyler Clippard was traded Uh Uh-huh, uh, yes, they were Obviously not of the caliber of some of those other guys
1: Alright, so, uh, with now the benefit of the entire trade deadline uh, Do you think that relief pitching actually costs more than it did Or than we thought it did a year ago? Uh, or was it just the Chapman deal that was kind of the one Freakish
0: outlier I think the Chapman deal looks like an outlier Compared to those other guys and We talked a bit about the reasons Why the Cubs might have been In a position to give up A ton for him and Yeah I, I mean it doesn't seem like It was an across the board thing At the deadline Miller Just is a really valuable player Because of the two years of Team control and also how Good he is so I mean do you think that the Yankees got, I guess they got more for Miller, but not uh, like three times more or something, you know, not two and a half times more? No, Just...
1: I mean, if you, depending on, like, I, I don't ever know how to measure guy in the majors against prospect, you know, over it's always hard. But other than, right, I, I mean, if you, you could make a case that Frazier and Torres are, you know, basically the same tier of prospect. And then there's there's not a Sheffield in the Chapman deal. But there is an Adam Warren, and Adam Warren's not a player that doesn't have value. He's in the majors. Yep. He's an established major leaguer who's making nothing. Uh, and then the other two parts are uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, clo- close enough to a wash, probably.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, so I think it's more of a Chapman outlier. The
1: other thing, yeah, I guess the one other bit of information that we got at this trade deadline that wasn't a trade was that the Yankees reportedly had uh, were unwilling to trade Miller for Lucas Giolito. Yeah, right. I was going to bring and that so up. Giolito is the best pitching prospect in the minors, might be the single best prospect in the minors. Now, the, it's not a particularly robust uh, prospect crop right now because of recent promotions, but all the same, I mean, the top prospect in baseball uh, for a reliever would... Uh, seem like maybe an easy trade, and uh, and that didn't happen. They were uh, reportedly, if this is any of this is true, reportedly unwilling to do that. So that I guess is also a data point here.
0: Yeah. Do you believe that? I it was a John Heyman report, right? So well, Heyman
1: a... reported on the Yankees.
0: Somebody else reported yes. on the Nationals being willing. Huh. So then I mean, it doesn't uh, really doesn't make that much more sense to me than the. Indians not starting Lucroy in 2017 I mean so that that's suggesting that the Yankees preferred Frazier and Sheffield and other pieces to Giolito and I guess that would suggest that they really value a position player or they're just worried about Giolito for some reason I mean it seems like that would be a deal that I wouldn't expect anyone to turn down yeah
1: you'd rather you'd in a vacuum, you definitely would rather have let's let's call Giolito you know number two or even number three. Even if we call him number three, you'd still rather have number three prospect in baseball than twenty five and seventy five, right? Yeah. And do I believe it? I mean, is it a do I believe it? I don't know if the Yankees are if they prioritized having a deeper farm, not just impact talent that could presume you know that could bust and leave them with nothing but actually depth if that's sort of a an actual philosophy that they're pursuing then maybe i could believe it but i don't know it is hard to believe it's i would guess that if you poll non-baseball team execs like the rest of us i would guess that the overwhelming majority would take giolito over the indians package
0: yeah i didn't believe it. When I saw the initial report about the Yankee side, I hadn't seen that it was corroborated on the national side too. Mm-hmm. Um, so the biggest,
1: it seems to me the biggest counter argument to this supposed inflation is Mark Melanson, who is, you know, this is basically the same contract status as Chapman. He's a rental. He'll, get, uh, he'll be a free agent at the end of this year. And really there is no time period over the last 4 years not 1 year not 2 years not 3 years not 4 years where he hasn't been as good as Araldus chapman he does it in a different way he doesn't strike out batters the same way that chapman does he doesn't even strike out batters the way that the average reliever does but as far as allowing runs uh, he has you know better era than chapman over that time uh, over each of those time periods and you know the return on him is significantly lower maybe I think, right? I think it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Again, it's always hard to know how to compare across positions, across service times, and so on. But, you know, Felipe Rivero is a young reliever who was, you know, never a great prospect, is not super young, isn't doing anything that we haven't, you know, seen before from 50 other 24-year-old relievers. Uh, And, uh, you know, it makes, I guess, some sense for the Pirates. They trade two months of club control of an expensive reliever for six years of a guy who's going to be cheap for a while. But like to me, those Chapman and Melanson in, I mean, they really shouldn't be that different in terms of what they bring back. And so it's hard to know whether Chapman is the outlier in an overpay or whether there's just something about the way that each of these relievers does it. That makes it impossible to compare them No matter how many innings they have Of comparable comparable relief work uh, Maybe it's just the case That teams don't want to have A closer who's going to allow The
0: ball in, to be put in play In the biggest moment of the year Yeah, which would probably be irrational Right, because Melanson Has been allowing balls in play As often as Melanson allows balls in play And he hasn't allowed runs So it doesn't seem like That much of a handicap
1: if it's if if there's a case for the Chapman model instead of the Melanson model in the postseason, I guess, it's that Melanson gets clean innings every time he comes in in the regular season, and so does Chapman. And given a clean inning, there doesn't seem to be any real difference between them. They're roughly as likely to give up a tying run, winning run, three runs, eight runs, whatever, as each other. But in the postseason, you're probably more likely to bring a guy in with runners-on in the eighth, maybe the tying runners on in the eighth, maybe the tying runner on third with one out in the eighth. And if that's what you're really buying these guys for, is that extra leveraged postseason moment that isn't the clean inning, that isn't the normal baseball closer inning, uh, but is something that only a handful of pitchers in baseball are really qualified to to dominate at, then maybe you say Melanson doesn't help us as much in October. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. It seems like a stretch. I mean, I think... I the the Melanson deal looks like, you know, highway robbery compared to the Chapman deal. Or maybe the Chapman deal looks like highway robbery from the other perspective compared to the Melanson deal. Yes. So, I had that reaction.
0: Me too. All right. Uh what else? Well, you wrote about Rich Hill. Oh picture, yeah, Rich Hill. Picture of this podcast. Rich Hill so. got traded he sure did, and you uh, you threw some cold water on the Rich Hill phenomenon. In I know. Your I was transaction analysis.
1: I was very disappointed. I was I was very disappointed. My I went into this thinking, okay, so the argument against Rich Hill is that he's this weird, crazy outlier, and we don't generally bet on weird, crazy outliers. And uh, Rich Hill, as the guy who was in indie ball one year ago today. Uh, no matter how good he is, is still the guy who was in indie ball one year ago today, and therefore you have to be very cautious with him. So then I, I wanted to find the counter outlier that he would be, and so I I thought, okay, well, probably very few pitchers have had a stretch this good, and they're probably almost all great, and so to believe that Rich Hill would have a stretch this good and not be great would make him also an extreme outlier, and therefore, one way or another, he's going to be an outlier, so you might as well pick the one that you believe in. And so I uh, looked to see the best 18 game stretches over the past 20 years and uh, including duplicates and overlaps, which are the, you know, the, the, the large percentage of these are duplicates and overlaps, right? Like literally hundreds of Pedro Martinez, 18 game stretches are phenomenal, but including duplicates and overlaps, his 18 game stretch is only like the 1300th best in baseball over the last 20 years. And that's still good, but there are, I think I said 79 pitchers who have had an 18 game stretch At least that good by FIP over the last 20 years. And um, so, I mean, you know, 79 pitchers is not a lot of pitchers, but like if you look at the 79th best pitcher since 1997 by war, it's Ubaldo Jimenez, which is kind of about like probably how many good pitchers, you know, like that probably is about how good you have to be to have a stretch like this at some point in 18 games. And, you know, the list has a lot of aces and the list also has. A couple dozen guys who you don't think are that exciting They're guys who you would add I mean, I'm not saying that the Dodgers don't get better With this trade Or that uh, that pretty much every rotation In baseball, in fact, yes Every rotation in baseball would be better With virtually any of the 79 players uh, That have done this But if you Are like me And want to see Rich Hill as not just An upgrade, but The best pitcher in the American League right now uh, As Billy Bean put it uh, or as, you know, the second best pitcher in the postseason this year behind Clayton Kershaw, because that's what he's done for an 18-game stretch. There is definitely reason to believe that a stretch this good is not prohibitive of many
0: bad outcomes. Yeah, right. And that's surprising. I was, I was, I don't know, somewhere between surprised and shocked to see how many players had done the Rich Hill over that time frame. And you Obviously, guys, they yeah. hadn't all been coming from such a low starting point, but still... And really, there, I mean, there's, there,
1: partly it's surprising because most of them also don't get to start from zero. Like Rich Hill, his 18 starts are, um, starting from zero. There's no 2015 stats besides these, and there's no 2016 stats beside these. So it's really easy to look back and go, Oh, wow. Since the start of 2015, he's done this. Uh, and usually when guys do this, it's like, seven starts at the end of one year and, you know, 11 at the start of the next year. And you never really get that super clean statistical record where like it jars you into noticing it. But the other thing is that a lot of times we did notice, like a lot of these guys who did this, we were writing about how great they were at the time. I wrote about Brandon Beachy, right? When he was in the middle of his Rich Hill stretch. And you could probably remember, you know, people writing things about Chris, I voted for Chris Medlin as my number five Cy Young the year that he did his Rich Hill stretch, and he only had like 110 innings that year. But I was so overwhelmed by how good Chris Medlin was uh, that I probably, um, you know, probably a lot of us were writing uh, irrational things about how good he was, like especially when he was going into that wild card game. In fact, I bet if you go back and look at what people wrote about Chris Medlin going into the wild card game that he started at the end of his uh, great year... There was probably a feeling that he was invincible, just like Jake Arrieta, right? Going into last year's postseason, he was seen yep. as invincible. He was at the end of a rich hill stretch. Now, Arrieta is, you know, legit. He's not, he's not Brandon Beachy. He's also, though, come way back to earth since then. And he's a ace, but not a, he's not the second best pitcher in baseball right now. And the, you know, Rich Hill stretch always leads you to think that he's more Rich Hill than he actually is. And Rich Hill is probably not as Rich Hill as we think he is. This is not, by the way, this is not, I'm not revealing anything that everybody else hasn't been yelling at their podcast player for the last (laughs) six months when I've been overwhelmed by Rich Hill. But
0: yeah, there was some talk of an extension before the trade, and I don't know whether that was posturing or actually serious, but I was curious. I was anticipating that extension amount just because it would give us a hard number for what a team thinks Rich Hill is worth right now. And I don't know whether because he went in the Redick trade also, it was the same trade. It's hard to pinpoint a value for Hill in isolation. So, I mean, the A's got some good prospects, but I, I don't know how to divide the, the bounty between Hill and Redick, especially because Hill's health status is somewhat suspect.
1: Yeah, I um, but I I also was hoping to see better uh, or um, extension negotiations uh, done in public. I and I didn't, but um, I think so, this is not evidence or anything, but I think somebody said suggested two and thirty eight million to Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle, and I think she said that uh, she would bet on it being lower than That I'm um, going to see if I can find that because I don't want to misquote Susan. But best guess, what percentage of this trade gets credited to Rich Hill and what percentage gets credited to Josh Reddick? If you split the return up uh, into um, you know a thousand shares, how many of them would be because Josh Reddick was in the deal? They're basically they basically have the exact same contract status uh, right now. They're both free agents and they're both making like something like six million dollars this year. So the money is like nothing.
0: Yeah, I would say. Probably close to 50-50, I would think, just because of the uncertainty surrounding Hill. If he were healthy, then I'd say a higher percentage, but hard to know how many innings to count on from him in the second half.
1: Yeah, he's only started twice in the last um, two months, and uh, as I put it, I mean, this is everything about Rich Hill is vexing, and the injuries are part of that. There, He has been injured for things that Uh, Should have no real lasting cost. Uh, Groin injury that he's recovered from and blisters. Those are things that obviously for the A's, you wish that he had been healthy in pitching. But for the Dodgers, you're kind of probably glad. Like, does that add to his trade value? I mean, he hadn't thrown 100 innings since 2007 across all levels. He was a reliever for a lot of that. So that makes it hard for him because he hasn't thrown that many innings and he was injured for a lot of it which makes it hard because he hasn't been able to stay healthy. So if you're the Dodgers or if you're any team that's thinking about trading him so that he can start um uh, you know game 6 of the World Series for you, you don't really want him pushing 245 innings by that point in his season. Thanks to the groin, thanks to the blister, he'll be maybe at 160, 165 tops, and that's aggressive, quite possibly at 130 or so. And I think I think if I'm a team trading for him and I'm convinced that the blisters are something that my training staff is going to be able to handle and that's not going to affect his pitch selection, I think I'm paying more for him now.
0: Wow, this is not, just like just, the, just, the just for Luke this season, argument. Just for this season. This would worth, not apply to he, he's yeah. worth more if he's not catching. Well, yeah, it is, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't think You'd so. You disagree I think just because he has a long track record of fragility. The fact that he has continued to have these nagging injuries would make me more worried than if he had been healthy all year. I'd be yeah. worried either way, because if he'd yeah. been healthy all year then you'd worry about fatigue. And now you're not as worried about fatigue, but you're just as worried, I think, that he just won't be able to start for other reasons. So I don't think it makes me feel any better. Yeah, you're
1: that's also a Position that I might have if I was trading for Ridge Hill, I think if I was trading for Ridge Hill,
0: I would feel very excited
1: and scared, no matter what sets of <laughs> facts you're giving me. It's just it's Rich Hill yeah uh, all right uh you wrote by the way, you wrote about Lucroy uh as the best player on the trade deadline market this year. Do you have anything to say about Lucroy's um decline in framing over the last few years do you do you believe it?
0: I believe it i don't understand it really But I believe it I think those stats are pretty sensitive And they're supposed to give you A pretty good idea of how good someone is In a pretty small sample And it is something that declines With age as far as I, I know Based on what Harry and Jonathan Judge And everyone has found at BP It's not a extremely steep decline But maybe his is steeper for some reason When you look at him I I wouldn't say it looks like he's fallen apart or something so it's hard to say and i haven't really dug into it to look at where he's not getting calls or is he setting up differently or or something and you know there are other theories about maybe it's like an umpire retribution like he he became known as one of the poster boys of catcher framing and maybe there was a backlash where umpires thought of him that way and then Tightened up the zone with him behind the plate, which is you know plausible, but I don't know. It it's somewhat mystifying. If it's accurate, then it makes him a lot less valuable, but still very valuable. I think I made up the thirty eight million dollars
1: thing, or maybe it was somebody else who covers the A's. But I am seeing Susan expressing some concern that he would accept a qualifying offer. Just that she says seventeen million is a ton. For a 37-year-old with a long DL history, I love the guy, but it's very risky. All right.
0: Any others? Well, anything on the Yankees? I mean, we can always
1: pick this up later as well. Yeah, we can. Do the Yankees get really good really quickly or, well, how'd they do? What's your sense? Well, I mean, the, I there's a lot they... of guys. Look, there's a lot of guys they didn't trade. And I, I there were a lot of people who were saying that it you know wasn't enough for the Yankees to sell. It was good for them to sell. It wasn't enough, though. They had to sell aggressively that there were you know eight pieces that should have been moved yesterday uh and they only moved 3 basically but they got really good returns for all of them i mean like really in at least two cases i think much more than you would have guessed they'd get and with miller that's debatable but certainly a a very good return um and uh some real superstar uh, potential in that deal so
0: that's good yeah i mean they they now have one of the very best farm systems in the game. I think it's safe to say they certainly have the most, I think they're tied with the Brewers for the most mid-season top 100. I, I think on Baseball America's list, each of those teams has seven apiece. And I think that's a pretty dramatic reversal from where they were up until a couple of years ago. And I guess there's more they could have done. I think they probably got rid of the guys that They could get the most for, I mean, assuming That they weren't going to trade Batantis or someone like that who They could keep for a while Those guys were Good ones to deal and You know, a lot of the guys they Don't want, no one else would want either They Mm -hmm. could have maybe made a move for You know, someone like Brett Gardner maybe would have had some value, or maybe well, even Sa- CC Sabathia, Sabathia has a little Sabathia, value
1: now. No, Sabathia really seems like the one that is uh, maybe the, the the next one you would think to be traded. If they uh-huh. if they had traded four, then he'd be the fourth. Uh, because if you, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, Andrew Kashner brought back value. Andrew Kashner is terrible uh, yeah. at pitching, <laughs> um, and uh, Wade Miley brought back a little value. Wade Miley's terrible at pitching. C.C. Sabathia has been a pretty good pitcher this year. Uh, he's been better than I would say better than those two guys. He's a player that everybody likes and who has big game pitching experience. I mean, I would imagine that that there'd be a lot of playoff teams that would love to have him starting the fourth game of a series for
0: them. But maybe not. Yeah, I I would think they could have gotten something for him. I'm I'm impressed that Brian Cashman convinced whomever he had to convince to let him sell seems just based on his public comments like something that philosophically he's been interested in doing for some time but hasn't been able to for whatever reason and they were clear sellers even if they didn't quite go as far as they could have so i think they did a a pretty impressive job of converting those guys into talent i don't know whether this is a long rebuild i don't know whether would you expect them to be good again in a year two years three years uh, a lot of the guys they got are not too far away from the majors but i don't know it's not like you know next year they're all going to be great but i think it could be a you know fairly quick at least maybe they're kind of having the the 2018 specter in mind because they have the a rod and to contracts coming off the books fairly soon and sabathia and then all those 2018 free agents are available, and maybe their young guys will be coming up at the same time. So the Yankees with the best or one of the best farm systems, in baseball is obviously scary for all the reasons that we've talked about the Dodgers having the best farm system in baseball in the last year or so was scary. So, a few
1: years ago, they were uh, trying to get under the luxury tax threshold because, um if they could get under for just one year, it would reset the penalties and they would save tons and tons and tons of money. And it went really badly. They didn't get there. It ended up turning into sort of a weird half measure uh, approach that cost them some um, well, cost them Robinson Cano, probably right. Is that? am I getting my off seasons correct? I forget. But, it was it was awkward. I would say it was awkward, and and then ultimately unsuccessful. They didn't get under the luxury tax threshold. I right. imagine that now with uh, with all these contracts you're talking about coming off the books, with Arod and Teixeira and Sabathia coming off the books, and with uh, something of a stripped down roster, uh, that is a lot of people think gearing up to make a big run at the 2018 free agent market, uh, that they will get under. That they will again. Tr- I'm a- I'm going to ask you this, but I would imagine they're going to try to get under the luxury tax threshold again. Is that what you believe uh, is the case? And if so, is it much easier this time? Is it going to be smooth this time? Can they do it without um, the awkwardness?
0: Yeah, it seems like it would be easier this time. Just, I mean, at some point before that 2018 free agent class, they could do it because A-Rod's contract expires and Teixeira's and Sabathia's, and then they won't really have that many more high-paid players left unless they sign some more. I mean. You know, you still have Ellsbury for a while, and McCann will be up after 2018, so he's for a while, too. But a lot of that money will be coming off the payroll, so yeah, you'd you'd think they could do it, as long as they don't splurge again, and in the past, they have kind of swung back and forth between not spending and spending, so we'll see whether Cashman actually has that on lockdown now.
1: All right, let's stop there. If uh, that will give us room to
0: be inspired to talk about some other things later this week. All right, so that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash wild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support, Alex Naser, Andrew Taylor, Dale Schneider, Daniel Wilson, and Ken Maeda. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, by going to the website at theonlyrulesithastowork.com. You can find out more about it there. You can also leave us ratings and reviews on Amazon and Goodreads if you like it. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to BaseballReference.com and using the coupon code BP when you subscribe. Send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We'll be back soon.